Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hi, I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to a special edition of Politico's Nerdcast. This episode was recorded in Pasadena, California at Politicon. Dan Diamond, Nancy Cook, and Charlie Matessian traveled to the opposite coast to do a live episode, and here it is. Welcome to the Nerdcast, Politico's data-driven look at policy and politics live from Politicon in California. I'm your host, Dan Diamond, filling in for the excellent Scott Bland, and I am joined today by White House reporter Nancy Cook and senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. So every week on the Nerdcast, we use a data point to go deeper into a story that is wrestling with Washington, D.C. and politics and policy, and the first data point we're going to start with is two. Two. Two chiefs of staff... Two press secretaries, two communications directors, two national security advisors, two FBI heads, two, <laughs> two scoops of ice cream, all in six months for Donald Trump in the White House. The swift resignation of Reince Priebus this week put a spotlight on the rotating cast of characters in the West Wing. So my questions, we'll start with this one. How unusual is this level of turnover in the White House? Charlie, you've covered this uh, you've covered the White House for decades. Put it in context. It's it's pretty unusual. Uh, I think what, for most presidents, you you, you know, it, it really depends. Some of them have had as many as four or five chiefs of staff over time, and that would include an interim chief of staff. Uh, others have had maybe two, maybe three. Uh, what, what I think is really unusual is is the level of turnover, and in such a compressed period of time. Uh, Reince Priebus now has the, the really weird distinction of being the longest-serving Republican National Committee chairman of all time and the shortest-serving chief of staff of all time. Uh, and it's pretty remarkable. I mean, he's only in uh, six months. And, you know, there have been other chiefs of staff who have had short tenures, like, for example, Bill Clinton's chief of staff in uh, his first term, you know, had some problems out of the gate, didn't work out so great, but he was still at least there for a year. So for rights to be out after six months, it's, it's really unusual. I want to talk about how it complicates the Trump agenda to have this much turnover. But one interesting thing is we've got a White House reporter who's covering the people and policies that are, are turning over all the time. So, Nancy, how does it complicate your job to cover the White House when the principles keep changing like this? Well, I didn't cover the Trump campaign, but I did have a friend who covered it for Politico tell me that uh, if you're going to cover the Trump White House, just like an FYI, don't get really attached to any of your sources. As they'll all be fired in three months. And at the time, I kind of laughed it off, but that has turned out to be the case. I mean, uh, you know, they're just a rotating cast of characters, and so you have to get to know, like, a whole new set of people, what they're like and what their biases are and what they're advocating for. And I think, like, more importantly, just for people to know, forget about our jobs, but it really changes the map of power in the White House. And so just in the last week, we saw the map of power completely shift from, you know, getting rid of a lot of establishment Republicans and RNC people like Reince and Sean Spicer 
you having a General Kelly elevated. And so now it's really generals and money men you know, versus before the narrative was the globalists from Goldman Sachs versus the nationalists like Steve Bannon. And so it's just the maps of power constantly shift. And as a reporter, you really have to be aware of that. But that's not normal for a White House to have these many different gangs of people, right? Like in the Obama administration, there, there wasn't always agreement, but there was a pretty clear line of everyone reported up to the chief of staff and then reported to the president. This is, we're in like a different world now. Well, part of the reason that we're in a different world is in the Obama White House, there was at least this lockstep of like, we're all going to try to do the, uh, you know, economic bailout. We're all going to try to pass health care. The thing about the gang things in the Trump White House and the reason that it's important is each gang has different policy objectives. And so whichever gang is sort of rising in power, that means that it could have a completely different outcome for the way that the president approaches health care or tax reform or if there's an infrastructure package or what regulations he's trying to roll back. And so I think that's where it really matters to real people. Which, which gang fights the dirtiest? <laughs> like Scaramucci shivs, I assume. What, what, what was Reince's weapon of choice? I would a strategic leak, maybe. I would say that Steve Bannon fights the dirtiest um, because he still has Breitbart that I, I would say he leaks to. Um, but now that he's you know, marginalized, gone down in stature a little bit, he's laying low right now. I would say the mooch in his week-long tenure has uh, shown that he has the real propensity to fight quite dirty. But it also should be said that when it comes to Scarabucci. The, the funniest thing and the most ironic thing about it is the idea that he is going to be the leak hunter. Because <laughs> in Washington especially, this is the funniest thing, because every Washington reporter understands that before he was hired in this position, he was your go-to guy. That was the guy who was always going to leak and give up the goods. And it was true during this campaign. And it was also true uh, during other campaigns that he was involved in. And he keeps leaking when he's talking about hunting the leakers. His conversations, he like leaked the guy he was going to fire later in the day, Michael Short. Right. <laughs> so c- clearly he needs a primer on not just how to hunt leaks, but how not to be one. Um, let's get back to how this is changing the Trump agenda to have this much turnover. So with the exit of uh, Sean Spicer and Reince, those are some of the long-held RNC folks. Does the Trump agenda shift as the Scaramucci's and the money men and generals come in? Well, I think partly, you know, healthcare has died for now. Uh, we might see it resurrected again. But now the administration is going to pivot to tax reform. We already saw them trying to do that next week. And that's something that both the president really cares about. And that's something that the money men, who I'm calling them like Gary Cohen, who runs the NEC, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and Anthony Scaramucci, that's something that they all really care about. And so I think that you'll see you know, as the money class is more prominent in the West Wing, they're going to you know, make their priorities known. One, one gang or group that we haven't talked about is the gang of, of Trump family and Jared Kushner, who have power beyond the appointees. And how, like, there has been a lot of scrutiny over the role that they play, but the defense from some Trump folks is go back to JFK and Robert Kennedy. It's not unusual. How much power do they have if there is a decision that, the appointees come with, and Jared Kushner and Ivanka have a different perspective? Well, I would say they haven't had a lot of power on policy so far. Like, for instance, they didn't want the president to pull out of the uh, Paris climate talks, but he did anyway. Um, but we, they do have a lot of influence on just uh, what the president does in terms of personnel. So, for instance, they wanted the president to get rid of Reince. Reince is gone. 
Uh, you know, they, they're close to the mooch. They wanted him in. And so we're really seeing their influence a lot more in personnel and the way the White House runs rather than actual policy. Sean Spicer, Reince Priebus, they were long rumored to leave. You didn't need to work at Politico and, and have the inside source to find that out because Trump would, would drop as many hints possible. Who is next on the hot seat? Like, who is the person who now that those guys are gone needs to be watching his or her back? I can guess. I mean, I think you're probably better suited having, uh, you know, since you operate daily in, uh, in the belly of the beast, and I'm really just the, the white-gloved uh, overseer of the, of the coverage. General Kelly's job seems to be impossible to me. I don't know how you— General uh, Kelly, the new chief of staff. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. Reince Priebus's replacement. I don't, the, the Priebus was part of the problem, but ultimately the wellspring of this all is President Trump. It is the chaos that emanates from behind his desk, and I, it's going to be very hard— for him to change his way. He's, he's not going to change his way, and that's going to make it difficult for him. He's, he's going to pivot any minute now, Charlie. The pivot <laughs> is coming. Just you wait. But then there'll be another pivot and another pivot, and you could almost walk down the, the list of, of cabinet agencies and see who's going, who's, who is, you know, on a collision course with, with the president. It's, it's Rex Tillerson who's been undermined in very significant ways. It's, uh, it's James Mattis who's been undermined. It's just those, to me, are, are the characters who would be most likely to go next. Yeah, or McMaster. Trump and McMaster mm-hmm. have had quite HR a lot. McMaster, yeah, HR McMaster. Security advisor. They've had quite a lot of tension lately. Trump doesn't necessarily like the way that he runs things, and there's been a lot of uh, rumors in Washington that he's going to be replaced by the CIA director, uh, Mike Pompeo, who's a former congressman. Um, although Pompeo is said to not really want it because he doesn't want to sort of deal with the chaos of the White House. Um, but I think Charlie makes a good point. Is like we might just see this rotating cast of characters you know, it's almost like a reality show. There's like a new character introduced, um, except it's the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Are we sure? Well, it is. I mean, that's the thing. I feel like, it, you know, on one level covering it, it's like always entertaining and there's always these new characters. Um, but then you also think about all the things that are at stake and it is the government and there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, the government has to decide. Someone, someone made a joke. I don't know who I'm stealing this from, but that this week was like the end of season one. The healthcare bill fails. Right. Spicer's out. Ryan's is out. It's like all these cliffhangers for right. season two after. And there's after like the a new, recess. the Mooch is like the new character who's yeah. brought into the house. And, <laughs> right. Incredible casting. I mean, wow. It is incredible casting. Um, this is the question I have, and I'm going to be a proxy, I think, for most of America when I ask... Let's say there's a national crisis, and not one like a self-generated Trump crisis, but there's a major disaster. There, there is war with nuclear, uh, North Korea. There's something that isn't of the White House's own making. Who does Trump listen to at the end of the day when these characters keep changing? And his Homeland Security Advisor is now his chief of staff, and there will be maybe a new Homeland Security Advisor. Maybe there won't be because it takes this administration a while. Who's got the president's ear when a crisis hits? Well, I think the people who ultimately always have the president's ear are his family. So it's Ivanka and Jared. So I think Ivanka... Just like in the Obama administration, <laughs> Malia and Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> Explains a lot. So he really listens to them. So I would say their counsel, despite their lack of foreign uh, policy expertise, uh, would be crucial. But then he does really like the money men and he does really like the generals. And so depending on what happens, he could really listen to... You know, McMaster or Mattis, although he did not listen to Mattis with the transgender ban. And he could also listen to General Kelly, who's now his chief of staff. Thinking a little bit forward, not, not too forward because things are changing all the time, but 
Democrats, in many ways, that, that I've interviewed and that Nancy has talked to, say that the Trump administration has been this major failure, but at the same time, it's been a success for Dems, and I think we'll talk about this a little later, because so little has gotten done on the agenda. What does all this turnover mean for either the midterms next year or even Trump's own prospects down the line? Charlie, as politics editor, I feel like you have a long-term perspective here. Yeah, I've been trying to think through this a lot. In other words, even though we're still in this first six months, you know, in my job, you're always thinking, you're trying to look and project ahead into the future and trying to figure out what is his path to reelection? What does he need to accomplish? What do Republicans need to accomplish for 2018? What do they need to accomplish for 2020? And, uh, I think in a lot of ways, though, the traditional framework that we've used in the past to try and interpret and understand elections is really out the window. Uh, and Trump broke the model in so, diff- so many different ways that uh, I'm not entirely convinced that he needs to have leg- standard legislative accomplishments the way other presidents have had to go to the electorate with accomplishments. Uh, because he is a very different kind of character, and I think what he's tapping into and what his constituents want is very different. They... Essentially, they want a big middle finger to Washington, and that's what he is delivering right now. And they may not expect much more than that, because keep in mind, if you look in the poll, if you looked at the polling data all the way up to the election, many of them were were very cognizant of the president's limitations, of the fact that many of those promises could never be delivered, or uh, of of lots of areas where you know the president you know was clearly talking about things that could never happen. They were well aware of that. Uh, so I think, number one, we, we, we can't expect that without an, accomplish, an agenda of accomplishments, he will be doomed. The, the, the second thing is, I also expect there, there's probably going to be a time where he's going to need to untether himself from the Republican Party, and we may see some kind of triangulation strategy, uh, in the sense that he is going to find it to his advantage to break away from the establishment, from the Republican Party. He sees they're going to start getting distance once they see polling data back home. Because keep in mind, members of Congress, for all the criticism that we have of, of them about being distant or being idiots or whatever, they have incredibly finely tuned antenna. They always know where their people at home are on any kind of issue. And the minute that Republicans begin to understand that the Republican base is pulling back from Trump, they are also going to peel away from Donald Trump. And that is going to be a very different kind of environment where Trump then, I think, runs against congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans and talks about them both being part of the swamp and him being the answer. Last question on this segment, and then then we'll move on. And this is actually a question for the room. Scaramucci, Anthony Scaramucci, is now White House communications director. John Spicer was communications director for six months. Will Anthony Scaramucci be White House communications director six months from now? Round of applause if you think so. Will he be gone well before that? That's a shame for those of us who cover him. Um, (laughs) Segment two. And the data point here, 234 minutes. That is how long the Healthcare Freedom Act, the so-called Republican skinny bill, ultimately lived. After Mitch McConnell introduced it a few minutes before 10 o'clock on Thursday, 10 o'clock p.m., and pulled it at 1.38 a.m. on Friday. And I was watching that whole, the whole life and death of uh, the Healthcare Freedom Act. So when you're thinking about what brought that Republican effort down, what was the biggest reason? Well, there were a few things. 
One thing was that, you know, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, uh, the senators from Maine and Alaska, really didn't want, you know, Medicaid expansion to go away, and they were worried about people losing coverage. But then I think someone like Senator McCain, who voted, you know, put in that crucial vote uh, in the middle of the night on Thursday or actually Friday morning, I think he was really much more concerned with the process, and he felt like there had been no process, they had come up with all of this behind closed doors, it had been chaotic, and he, as a longtime senator, was sort of horrified by the way that just they were legislating, and he wanted to disrupt that. And, and I can answer, too. I, I cover healthcare for Politico, so maybe I'll, I should just be asking a few questions of me. Um, <laughs> but one, one thing that is, is really telling is just a bad bill. And I, I did a panel earlier at Politicon and asked the room, do you like the bill? Do you not like the, the bill? Republicans don't like it. Libertarians don't like it because that bill didn't go far enough. It left huge parts of the Affordable Care Act in place. And liberals don't like it because it took away coverage from a lot of people. And whether you think that the individual mandate is driving people who don't want to be covered, they just feel obligated to buy coverage, it's a very hard sell to say, pass this health care bill where the uninsurance rate is going to go up. That, that has never been tried with a major piece of legislation before. So it was a bad messaging job. It was almost an impossible one. And there were very few supporters outside of a handful of Republicans in Washington, D.C. Patient groups hated it. Hospitals hated it. The average American hated it. The poll numbers were bad. And yet, for all of that, it was one vote away. If John McCain had decided he wanted to stick with the caucus and, and push it through, it, it would have happened. And yet it didn't. And, you know, the, the, the one thing I would add to that, there was also a passion gap. And, and when I say passion gap, I guess what I'm referring to is no Republican loved that bill. Nobody uh, went on the Sunday shows to pitch it. Nobody was talking it up, beating the drum for it all the time. And, and let, me, let me jump in there. I, I have a podcast about healthcare for Politico. I could not get Senate Republicans to come on and talk about it. Like, I got them earlier in the year when it wasn't their issue and the House was dealing with it. But once they had it, they just ran from it. Yeah, and I mean, they understood how politically toxic it was. But the other thing, too, is, you know, if you think about it in terms of why people run for office, uh, it, both, both parties, you know, when you, when you deal with enough politicians, you begin to understand the kinds of things that motivated them to run for office in the first place. And here I'm talking about way back when, when, when they were just babies in the business, when they, when they started maybe on city council and, and began their path up through the legislature and Congress. No Republican ever gets in because of health care. This is something we've talked about before. No Republican ever decides to run because they care deeply about health care. Now, that's not, that's not a criticism. That's just not one of the motivations. But on the other hand, for many Democrats, that is a motivating factor. Uh, and so there was a real gap there in terms of what was driving people. If it was another issue, maybe you would have seen a very different kind of approach. And then the other vacuum element, I think, that was there was the White House's involvement. I think they misunderstood what it takes to uh, to get a complicated measure of, like that passed. They didn't really have a great grasp of what to do. I think in a lot of ways, they still see it as maybe you know, New York City, and you, you maybe turn the screws on people, or you do this, or you do that. When we are now, Washington is a, is a multipolar world with all these different forces of power. The leverage points are totally different. The, the, the members of Congress, the senators, are these folks with very different power bases. What motivates them is very different than the kinds of things that, that the president has been used to, and it requires a level of discipline and to nuance. get all that together. Yeah. Discipline, nuance. You can't have a press conference where you threaten a United States senator. Like, they will not respond to that. You need other <laughs> carrots and sticks. So wait, you, you, you don't think that Donald Trump's closing pitch of attacking Jeff Sessions 
And, and uh, saying that there are too many leakers in his government was a way to get the health care bill across the finish line? <laughs> and it's not just Sessions. Uh, he whacked Dean Heller of Nevada. He whacked Lisa Murkowski. He whacked lots of different people. And I don't know that ultimately that was the best way to go. What I thought was one of the most interesting things of covering the health care bill was just if you went back to the transition, the Trump transition before, uh, you know, after he had won, when they were mapping out everything they were going to do and they were at their most optimistic point, there was really a sense that healthcare was going to be super easy. Like it was going to be no problem. You wrote and, this great story about yeah. that. Yeah. And they just thought we were going to go in there day one, you know, get rid of Obamacare. And there were all these warning signs with Republican lawmakers who were worried about getting rid of it without replacing it. And there were a few different points in January and February where it seemed like they probably should have seen the warning signs that this was going to be tougher, but they still carried on thinking like this is going to be no problem. And they really paid for underestimating it. How badly does this healthcare debacle set back Trump's broader agenda, Nancy? I mean, they've spent so much time on this. And right before we came in here, our colleagues have been reporting out of D.C. that Trump still wants the Senate Republicans to deal with this. He's sending out tweets about the need to move on repeal and replace. Doesn't appear they've got the votes, especially with McCain, out of D.C. for a month. If they stay on healthcare longer, like, when are they going to get to the other items on their agenda? I don't think they're going to stay in healthcare longer, but part of the problem and the reason they did healthcare first, even though Trump is honestly not very interested in healthcare and most people in the White House are not very interested in healthcare, they did it first was because it was going to create all the savings that they could then use to pay for tax cuts. And so just from a completely mechanical perspective, it's going to screw up like all the other things that they had lined up because they were counting on that money. Last question on, on healthcare. There's been a lot of focus on John McCain and his role in casting a very dramatic vote. But there's also been a really big pushback from folks who say, if you're going to give credit to anyone for defeating the healthcare effort, you got to give it to Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Or are we making too much of what McCain did when those two senators and female senators, female Republican senators, which not a lot of female Republican senators, there are only five, should we think about the legacy of McCain in a different way? Should we think about the healthcare fight differently than, than perhaps is being portrayed by all of the glowing articles about McCain? Yeah, we, we are guilty in the media of uh, making a big deal out of uh, the drama of, of McCain's vote. And, and maybe in some ways that diminished uh, the Murkowski and Collins efforts. But at the same time, I think we, we did in most news outlets recognize what a tough vote that was for those two. I mean, those two, uh, you know, even back home, they're, they're highly controversial in their, in their, uh, home state Republican parties. Uh, Lisa Murkowski has actually lost a Republican part, uh, primary before, you know, Collins, you know, you, you talk to folks in Maine, Maine Republicans, you know, they're really mixed on her. So it was a tough vote for both of them. And the courage it took to, to sort of buck your party on such a tough vote shouldn't be diminished. But I think McCain got a lot of attention in part because this was really a historic vote and historic in the sense that this was a legacy vote for John McCain. Decades from now, even five years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to be, when you, when you look back at a senator like McCain, people will remember him. He is a, a United States senator who left a mark on the institution. People will remember the big moments, campaign finance, the presidential campaigns, and they will remember this too. And I think it was an attempt to capture part of that uh, that 
history with this vote. And I think McCain also, he's, you know, he's a, a, a student of history. He understood that this vote was very much about his legacy. And not to be crass about it, but he knew just as well as we do, he is suffering from uh, a, a, an inoperable form of brain cancer, you know, the most severe form. He understands that his life in, in the public arena is not indefinite right now. And, he, and he's beginning to think in those terms. Last thought on this, and then we'll move to our, our final segment. But uh, John Kasich, the Ohio governor, has kept saying, I'm going to expand Medicaid. I will support this because forget what happens here. I want to have a good answer when I, when I make it to the pearly gates. And I've, I've heard from a lot of Republicans in my reporting, they do believe in coverage expansion. There has been a sea change in my time covering healthcare where Republicans now, like, this is the new norm, that coverage expansion is is good. And yes, there are a lot of political attacks on it the past number of months, but it's very different than during 2009 and 2010 when that was a much harder sell. But wait, can, can I push back on that a little bit? In, You're the uh, editor. Just, I guess you can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that true about all Republicans? Meaning it's certainly true of some Republicans. When it comes to health policy, in our office, Dan is the final word, but to me, the, the Medicaid expansion is a, an issue in the more diverse states, the, the, the bigger states, the Ohios of the world, but not in the main body of the Republican conference where many of those members represent fairly small, fairly homogenous states. I think it depends on, on where you're looking. So the Medicaid expansion is, is certainly politically problematic because of Medicaid, because of the way that that program has been described and thought of. Lots of Republicans say it's a welfare program. You talk to Democrats, they would not say it's a welfare program. They'd say it's a social protection. So yes, there is a specific animus toward Medicaid, but the idea of coverage expansion, that has changed. And while Republicans say we don't want to fund Medicaid, but we do want to figure out a way to expand coverage, that was not the case eight years ago. Um, Let's go to our last segment, and the room is going to help us with this. So the data point here is six months-ish. Six months of the Trump White House, of this administration, and we are going to talk about our winners and losers, and the room is going to decide who's made the best case for a winner and loser. We're going to start with winners. Each one of us will describe someone quickly, and then we'll rip each other to shreds about it, and you will get to vote. So, Charlie, who is the big winner of the first six months of the Trump administration? Okay, I'll make a case for it. I would say... Uh, there are lots of winners, but mine would be uh, Kamala Harris, the, the senator from California. And he, here's why. Playing the uh, home crowd. Yeah. I know it seems like a playing what the home crowd. What a suck up. What a suck up. I know, but, no, but listen, listen when, to When case. we did the show in Maine, you picked Susan Collins. What, what is this? Like, <laughs> Are you guys done? <laughs> so here's, here's what I think. Even in California, there, there's not a widespread familiarity, recognition with, with her as the same character that we have in the East. So in Washington, here's how she's viewed. I know out here, a uh, attorney general, people see her as kind of like a cautious figure. But in Washington, um, she is seen as something of a fresh face. The donor class loves her, eats her up. And she had a couple of signature moments on national TV and in these televised hearings where she really captured the imagination of a lot of Democrats, uh, helped her raise a lot of money. Uh, you may have read she was out uh, in the Hamptons of all places, and you know, the Hamptons, the fancy schmancy Hamptons, where you, know, you go for the big fundraising events. Uh, she had a, a big ritzy fundraiser out there. People are talking about her as a viable prospect for president uh, in 2020, and in part because all the rules are out the window now. One of the things we've learned from the Obama era and the, the, the Trump era is that all these expectations and 
norms that we had about who could run for president, they're gone, they're out the window. It's a new era. So what? She's in her first term. Doesn't matter. She is now recognized. She animated a lot of Democrats with her performances and got noticed. And she is going to be someone who is talked about, even though publicly she is very circumspect about it right now. Nancy, who is your person? My person is Gary Cohn, who is uh, a New York money man. Um, he was the number two at Goldman Sachs, and he's the head of the National Economic Council, which is like normally really wonky and sort of off to the side. But he's uh, assembled like a real power base uh, out of the White House because of that, and President Trump really views him as a peer and has also recently mentioned him as a potential uh, Fed chair who would replace Janet Yellen. That's like the person in charge of the U.S. economy. Um, and so I would say he is my winner because he's operated in the White House. You know, you don't read stories about him. He's emerged unscathed, and he's potentially setting up himself for, like, a huge job. My person, my big winner of the first six months, I mean, it's obviously got to be Chuck Schumer. Because, as we just talked about, Republicans couldn't pass an Obamacare repeal plan in the Senate. He has held his caucus together, which was no foregone conclusion back when Trump was elected. Heidi Heitkamp from uh, North Dakota. North Dakota. Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota, a Democrat, was talking to work, uh, Trump about working the administration. Joe Manchin from West Virginia was thinking about it. The fact that they voted in lockstep on every Trump initiative, essentially, that, that reflects so well in Schumer. And then he won over John McCain. There's a great piece. We don't always endorse the New York Times on a Politico podcast, <laughs> but a great piece in the New York Times today about how Schumer was out there cultivating McCain all week. So it was a foregone conclusion that Obamacare was going down when Trump was elected. It's going to be August. We still got Obamacare. Chuck Schumer gets my vote as the big winner in Washington. And I'm going to tell you why your choices were horrible. Um, let's Wait, I, I feel like I should start. I mean, you both pick Democrats. Democrats don't run anything now. Like, Republicans run everything. So obviously, as the only person who named a person who has any power, we just I should win. You just, we just talked about the crazy White House. They're running it into the ground. Like, it's not... But they're still the ones in office. If you've got a car and you're crashing it, that doesn't make you cool. Um, and that's why, that's why Gary Cohn, I don't know how he's winning anything. Like anyone from this White House, your, your place in history might be very imperiled. The fact that he might get a job down the line doesn't matter when he's got a job right now in a place that's toxic. And Kamala Harris, I think picking a senator is a big winner. A Democratic senator is a great idea, but not someone whose only achievements are symbolic. And you even said, Charlie, and the people in this room know this. What has she done? She wasn't even the biggest star in those hearings. Al Franken pinned Jeff Sessions. Kamala Harris got, like, overspoken by the, the white male Senate. Like, that was her big achievement. No, let's, let me... Let's gang up on Dan. Okay, let me start the gang up. First of all... If you had to say, who is more likely to be president of the United States either in 2020, 2024, or 2028, Chuck Schumer or Kamala Harris? Well, I think Chuck... Uh, uh, it's, it's a quick answer. Come on, lightning round. Chuck, Chuck Schumer, clearly, because he's already in a position of leadership. He's a national figure, and he's, he's brought coalitions together. Because no, but New York Democrats appeal to the whole country. <laughs> yeah. they, they go over really well New, in the South. New, a New York Democrat just won the popular vote in 2016. I rest my case. Chuck Schumer. Wasn't always from New York. But you're talking about Chuck Schumer and, and lauding this idea that he held the Democratic caucus to, together as if that was that hard. I mean, all, every single one of those members would be lynched by the Democratic base if they broke on health care. I mean, what was so hard about that? I, I think what was hard is we're at a time when Washington is perceived to be broken. 
and to our president and people who are making deals and moving the country forward. There's a lot of pressure on that. If you were one of the eight red state Democrats in like West Virginia that Trump handily won, there's a lot of pressure to make a deal with Trump and try to keep your seat. The fact that they were putting their own prospects at risk, I think speaks well to Schumer, who was able to convince them, focus on the big picture, not your own job. I disagree. I think if you look at, okay, so West Virginia, which... Also, we're talking about healthcare, when I thought I was the expert at Politico on on healthcare-related issues. (laughs) Do you even work there? (laughs) I actually, I didn't hear what you just said because I was laughing at my own joke, but... (laughs) That's why Dan should lose, basically. (laughs) Well, if, if there's no other objection to my pick, I guess we can throw this to the crowd. So, who thinks Senator Kamala Harris was the big winner of the first six months? Round of applause. Base, yeah. Charlie, playing to the base. Who thinks it was Gary Cohn? Respectable. Who thinks it was Chuck Schumer? So I, I think it was close, but I think Schumer won. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to we'll have to go to the tape and listen to this week's episode of Nerdcast for ourselves. Let's flip this now. The big loser of the first six months, Charlie. I think uh, it would be Reince Priebus, and um, here's why. I know that sort of seems like an obvious one right now, but I think it's, there, there's a lot of reasons that, that make it worth highlighting where things went off the track for uh, Reince. Because as, as I mentioned before, this, this was somebody who came from the RNC where he had an enormously successful tenure. That's often forgotten, and that's going to be lost for posterity. He was the RNC chairman for most of the Obama era, uh, and he had tremendous amount of success there. He left office with the White House in Republican control, the House, the Senate, state house dominance across the United States landscape. He uh, remade the infrastructure of the RNC. He erased a $24 million budget deficit. He left the RNC in great shape. He was one of the best fundraisers ever. And I would make this argument that I think ultimately... He sounds like a big winner. Pretty accomplished guy. Well, I, I'm going to drop the anvil on him shortly. Uh, but, but I would also make the case that had he played his cards right, he would be remembered as one of the finest RNC chairs ever in a class with, say, Ray Bliss, who was the RNC chairman in the 60s, who helped the party recover from the Goldwater loss. Uh, he would have been up there with Len Hall, uh, Ike's RNC chief, who sort of oversee, who, who I think is responsible for understanding the power of the suburbs, which would power the Republican Party for most of the, the second half of the century and then in the post-war era. But here's where things went wrong. He placed an enormous bet on uh, Donald Trump, and Trump ate him alive. He thought he could control Trump. Trump understood very uh, early on. I mean, there's a great uh, Trump quote about Priebus where, uh, and I can't remember the exact words, you might know it better than me, where basically he, he jokes that Priebus can never rain, Priebus will never rein me in. You know, it's not like he's a five-star general or something. And I think it goes to show that, that Priebus saw him as uh, in the early years, even before uh, Donald Trump decided to run for president, as a mark, as somebody who would be a great donor. And then I think he thought he would be able to rein in Trump uh, and control him. And it turns out that he couldn't at all. He came to the White House and ended up being a, a weak chief. And people will always remember his his uh, tenure as the White House chief of staff as a failure and as someone who did not accomplish anything for the president, including stewarding Healthcare, uh, the Obamacare repeal, and people will always remember that and not his tenure as RNC chairman. Nancy, you're a big loser. 
There were so many, there have been so many losers so far in the, like, in Trump world that it, it really, it, I have really had to think about this one. But I do think that Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been perhaps one of the biggest losers. He gave up an incredibly safe Senate seat. Uh, you know, he was doing his thing in the Senate, was never in leadership, but, you know, was well-liked, um, you know, had his immigration platforms and he signed on to the Trump campaign to support Trump very early on, was one of the few Republican senators to do so. Uh, you know, at this rally in Mobile, he lent Trump all the support. So there was all these dramatic moments. And then he got this dream job that he had wanted running the Department of Justice. And then Trump basically has crapped all over him in the past week, despite the fact that he's carrying out Trump's agenda at the Department of Justice and doing exactly what Trump had wanted and what the campaign had promised. So he's been super loyal and he's carrying out the agenda compared to like other people who are kind of pushing their own agendas inside the White House. And he's still, uh, that loyalty has not been paid off. And so I think he's a good illustration of just how hard it is to be loyal to the president when the president never gives that in return, at least so far. And I think uh, he would be my biggest loser. I like where you're going, Nancy, by thinking of a cabinet secretary who's <laughs> been been twisting in the wind, because my pick is HHS Secretary Tom Price in charge of the health care effort. He was expressly picked for the job because when he was a congressman, he was the number one critic of Obamacare. He hates Obamacare. Now he's got to run Obamacare. It, it doesn't appear that it's going away. He's stuck with this program that he hated. And Trump said last week at the Boy Scouts rally, he said, well, you know, if, if we can't get health care, I, I think we've got to fire Tom Price. Ha ha. But he's not entirely joking. So he's stuck with this program. He may or may not be fired, and in the meantime, his name has been dragged through the mud. If you follow healthcare, the whole uh, uh, confirmation hearing was about his stock deals and other things that he may have done that were, were a little illicit. And this was a guy who, until that, had been thought of as like this very honest, straight dealer. Now that is going to follow him through, and he's even being investigated by the GAO because HHS has been running ads attacking Obamacare, and there's a question over whether that's even legal, given, given their, their role. So Tom Price, twisting in the wind, stuck with a program that he hates, clearly the biggest loser of the past six months. And I think in com uh, comparison to your picks, Nancy, you, you said it yourself, Jeff Sessions is living his dream job. Every day that he gets to be attorney general, that's a big win for Jeff Sessions. He never would have been confirmed under any other administration. So he's out there. Like, Sure, the president's making fun of him a little bit, but he's got this job that he always wanted. Okay, just to push back on this, the president is not making fun of him a little bit. The president like invited three New York Times reporters into the Oval Office to basically write a whole article all about how much... He hates Jeff Sessions and blames Jeff Sessions for all the Russia stuff because he failed to recuse himself. But he's thinking about Jeff Sessions and the thought counts, Nancy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> to have the president tweet at Jeff Sessions all the time about how incompetent he is, you know, how weak he is. He can't I quit mean, Jeff Sessions. He's just thinking about him all the time. It's been relentless. It's Groundhog Day every day for Jeff Sessions. It's off being Jeff Sessions. Let me take on... Uh, Price for a second. Yes, I mean, let's take on Dan. Here, here's why Price is such a crappy pick. It's <laughs> Price is like um, if you haven't seen him before, just take a look. He's like always strikes me as Ned Flanders. You know, he's Ned Flanders. He is uh, a doctor. He is a, a Republican who had been I there have to for cover him. So I'm not commenting on what he's. <laughs> what he's I, like. I don't. So I have the luxury of saying that. 
For him, this is a great job. And he gets to wonk out and, you know, sort of roll up his sleeves and live in the details uh, uh, of the... program he hits. uh, Yeah, but he's the head of HHS. And, like, it's a great gig for him. Even though he lost, he's got lots of action on his plate still ongoing. I mean, as our colleagues uh, at Politico have written, Dan... You know, a big part of undoing Obamacare now is going to be at the agency. And there's going to be a lot of regulatory things that they can do. And Tom Price, like, sure, he didn't get the big, you know, big win in the Senate of killing Obamacare. That big moment went away. But now they can just kill it a lot of small ways. And he's going to oversee that. I don't know if they can, though, because there's so much scrutiny. Every time Donald Trump says we're going to, like, let Obamacare implode or implode or help it implode, there is so much attention now that I don't know if they can get away with sabotage when it's been out in the open. But someone who is now out in the open and free to do whatever he wants is Reince Priebus. He's been set free from this job that he hated. He's going to go make a zillion dollars as a talking head or writing a book. Ryan's is like a big winner this week. Now he doesn't have to deal with this anymore, and he can go back to being like free of, of Donald Trump, who is tormenting him. If he Sean was, Spicer might be on Dancing with the Stars. Ryan's could join a, him. Yeah. He, sh- he should be the big winner then, Sean Spicer. I think if he's going to be on Dancing with the Stars. Sean Spicer seems thrilled with his life these days, now that he's out. <laughs> he really does. He's got time for more gardening. Um, let's, let's go to the audience now. Who thinks Ryan's was the biggest loser of the first six months? Who thinks it was Jeff Sessions? And who agrees that it was obviously Tom Price? <laughs> oh, whoa. I, I think we're going to have to go to the tape on that one, too. I just, too close to call. Uh, since it's two minutes to seven, if anyone has any questions, we're happy to take them. There's a mic right there. Hi there, uh, my name's Ian from Santa Barbara. So a few months back, I think there was a, I, think, I don't know if it was a leaked memo from the RNC about how their plan for 2018 in Congress, their big pitch for the Republicans is going to be running against the mainstream media. Considering, you know, Trump's very unpopular, but the mainstream media is actually less popular than him. Do you think that's a successful <laughs> pitch to stay away from, you know, running on Trump's agenda? I think it's brilliant. Uh, can, can you paraphrase uh, the question? Because I'm not sure everyone yeah, heard Basically, it. the question is uh, the idea that uh, there is, I guess, a memo that, uh, about, uh, from the RNC about running against the mainstream media as a, as a major campaign theme in, in 2018. I hate that it's happening, but I think it would be brilliant. Clearly, it works. Lots of politicians are getting traction with it, and people hate us. Like, let's, let's be honest about it. It's true. I mean, all I, I didn't hate know. you until you beat me in the last panel <laughs> right. segment. But. And, and not only do, do most people dislike or distrust the media, it's especially true on the Republican side. There's some fascinating polling out there done by the Pew Research Center, and they do wonderful stuff if you're ever interested in, in uh, reading about it. And Pew's numbers show that among Republicans, it's really off the charts level of distrust and uh, bad, bad ill feeling toward the media. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Tyler Bustamante. I'm here um, coming from Rancho Cucamonga. And what I want to know is, since the Trump administration has taken over, there's been a lot of craziness going on throughout all of Washington. And I feel like because of this, it has really brought up um, more of the average American to actually pay more attention to politics and to pay attention to what is going on in Washington. Do you feel like that is happening across the United States, or has this already started even before Trump? 
I feel like Trump, uh, well, the whole 2016 campaign was like a huge boon for politics and political reporting and just journalism in general. I mean, I think there's been like an amazing amount of journalism done. And I feel like people were really engaged in the 2016 campaign because people on both sides felt like there was so much at stake. I I have a quick comment and then we'll quickly run through the last questions, which is we have been in an era, and I talked about this with another Politico editor last week, of more interest in politics at a time when politics has become ever more polarized. And I think some of that is because of the characters in politics. So Barack Obama, the first black president, Hillary Clinton, the first serious woman contender for the presidency, Donald Trump, a reality TV star. Like these characters have gotten in that if you are just a casual observer of politics, you can identify with or follow with, even though, as Nancy was just saying, there's so much polarization that there's like less happening. But the, the entry points are really appealing. Next question. All right, so um, I'm just going to be honest. I kind of disagreed with all of your losers. I'd have personally gone with Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, but that's different. Um, My main thing was I have kind of a conspiracy working in the back of my mind. I feel like what's going on is Donald Trump might want to move Jeff Sessions into DHS now that uh, Kelly's gone, so that way he can get at Mueller without actually having to go through the work of firing Jeff Sessions. Um, is there, is, is this anywhere remotely near a realm of possibility? Yeah. So he would have to be like reconfirmed for the DHS slot and then they'd have to reconfirm someone from DOJ. Also Jeff Sessions, like running DOJ is his dream job. And so it's not as easy just procedurally for Trump to be like, eh, hey, you move over here. Um, and so I feel like I've heard that rumor too, but I feel like it's, it's unlikely. I feel like Sessions would, he would have to fire Sessions first or Sessions would quit. That's a more likely scenario than Sessions moving to a different agency. All right. Thank you. Well, we'll keep our ears out for, yeah. uh, for movement. Hi, my name's Naomi. I work on health policy issues here in Southern California. Just want to say thank you for the panel. It's the best I've attended today. Um, thank you. And for the oh, civil so discourse. Nice. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you all. My question is regarding a little bit the interaction between kind of state policy and state politics with uh, some of the workings that are happening in D.C. I'm particularly interested around kind of the influence around Republican governors like Governor Kasich and um, Governor Sandoval, right, Mm -hmm. of Nevada. How much do you think that interplay of influence that Republicans have at the state level uh, will be vital or will be pushed back in the midterm elections in 2018? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. Um, it's, it's a really good question because I think in most traditional administrations, if it was a traditional Republican, the, uh, the Republican governors would be uh, the, the kings of the political universe. Because keep in mind, Republicans have a majority of them, and some of their biggest stars are in, in state capitals now. I mean, they are the pipeline to the presidency over the upcoming cycles, whether you're talking about 2024 or 2028. And they have some real talent there, people like Brian Sandoval, uh, folks like that. But I think that in some ways their, their stature has been diminished in the Trump era only because he doesn't rely on them as much. Some of them are at odds with him, whether you're talking about Kasich. Uh, Sandoval is obviously not in his good stead because of his position on health care. But within, I I think, the Republican firmament, the governors traditionally, uh, I think, play a much more important role than with Democrats because uh, Republicans always respect – I tend to think, just having covered – state capitals for a while. I feel like Republicans respect state executive experience and tend to look to governors much more often than Democrats do. Well, it's federalism. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it has to do with, with their philosophy of governance, but it also has to do with the fact that right now they hold most capitals. Thanks for the question. And last question, and then everyone is free. <laughs> Hi, thanks for the work. There was a uh, White House correspondent being interviewed on Morning Edition earlier this week, and she made a couple of observations I'd like to hear her comments on. One is that Donald Trump loves chaos. Maybe it's just me, but that sounds like a bad thing in the leader of the United States. Um, and second of all, uh, White House staff are referring to Scaramucci as Donald's shiny new toy. So I'd like to hear what you think about that. Well, we have a White House reporter who should take the first stab at that. So I think Trump does like a certain amount of chaos, or he just is used to running his business a certain way, and I think that he has assumed that he can run the White House the same way. I wouldn't say like he likes chaos. I would say he likes team of rivals kind of situations, and that in turn creates the chaos. And so, you know, he's told, like, Gary Cohen and Steve Mnuchin, you're both doing tax reform, but, like, it's unclear who was going to do it. It was unclear who was going to lead healthcare. I just think he creates situations that lend themselves to chaos because there's never, like, a clear kind of command or hierarchy. I mean, he's always the one at the top, but then there's always, like, this really confusing second level. Um, and then what was the second question about? That uh, staff insiders are referring to Scaramucci as the new Donald's toy. shiny new toy. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. And, I, yeah, I mean, he, he is the shiny new toy. He is shiny. He's like, yeah. he's like you know, he's the mooch. <clears throat> the, thing, the thing that he has that Spicer doesn't have is that, you know, he and the president get along really well. I think that they just have, like, more of a mind meld, and I think that that will make his job easier. And, yeah, absolutely, he's a shiny new object. And the president loved it when he went after Reince in the New Yorker article. Like, he was not chastised for that. Um, Reince was, like, chastised for not then going after Scaramucci in a public way. And so I think that that episode says a lot about how the White House works. But there is a real sense of, um, you know, to turn this serious for a second, there is, like, a sense of you know, paranoia in the White House among the staffers because there's such a sense of distrust uh, with each other. It would be like going to work every day. You know, I love these guys, but it would be like going to work every day where you didn't like any of your colleagues or maybe just one person and you didn't trust anyone and you felt like, you know, not not just that you didn't trust people, but that, you know, uh, some people in the White House would be actively, you know, saying things to the press that you didn't feel like were true. You would just feel like you might get knifed in the back at any time. And that creates a really stressful work environment. And, and this, this hasn't happened so much, but because we're reporters and there's always like stories about what's happening at the Times or Politico, when, when there is an article about your workplace and you right. read about people in your workplace talking to the press, like that's a very destabilizing thing because then you're not sure, is it the person that I just talked to? Like, right. and, and they deal with that all the time. So whether your politics are liberal, conservative, whatever, it is very hard for the Trump agenda to happen when the White House is like shifting each other like this. Well, we'll leave it on that optimistic note. That's that's the end of Nerdcast this week. You can find Nerdcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back with new episodes, not live from Politicon, but this was a lot of fun to do. Nancy, Charlie, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks for listening. That was Charlie Matessian, Nancy Cook, and Dan Diamond at Politicon in Pasadena, California. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Cusick, and all the folks at Politicon who pulled this convention appearance off. I'm Scott Bland, your Nerdcast host. You will hear from us again soon.